Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, and today I'm speaking with Jack Green, Andrew W. Mellon Professor Emeritus at Johns Hopkins and Fellow in Residence at John, the John Carter Brown Library. And today we'll be discussing his recent book, Settler Jamaica in the 1750s, A Social Portrait. Jack, thanks for joining me. Uh, uh, thanks for asking me. So your book looks at Jamaica in the middle of the 18th century, and I was wondering why this particular time was of such interest to you and how you got into this project in particular? Well, I, um, uh, my research interests in the era in, from the late 1740s uh, through the very early 1760s uh, dates back a really long way <laughs> to the early 1950s. Uh, and, uh, but in uh, 1963 or so, I decided that I was going to write a book, which I never have done, um, on the um, uh, efforts of the, uh, of, of the uh, uh, metropolis of the Metropolitan Colonial Administration to alter many of the uh, de facto or customary constitutions of uh, so many of the American colonies. Um, I, and I noticed this phenomenon in my first book, which was about uh, legislative uh, government in um, Virginia, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia uh, during the uh, from the Glorious Revolution to the American Revolution. Uh, and I, uh, in 1963, I spent the entire summer in London reading through all the documents for all the British co- American colonies, all the uh, uh, islands as well as those on the continent. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, from about, oh, 1745 to 1763. And, uh, of course, Jamaica was one of those colonies and I investigated uh, it in particular detail because the, fo- the, the volumes of manuscripts were so large on it. Uh, and uh, I concluded that it was at the uh, forefront of colonial resistance during those years. Um, and because it was the scene of two major uh, constitutional struggles between 1762 and 1766, uh, both of which were successful struggles, um, and and as well as a fair number of lesser things going on in Jamaica at at the time. And indeed, uh, Jamaica became the only colony before the Stamp Act uh, to be subjected to parliamentary censures uh, on uh, on relating to its uh, domestic uh, uh, governance. So, so I w- my I'm I was already deeply involved in looking at seventeen at the middle of the 18th century uh, before I discovered uh, these uh, documents in the. Uh, I can't remember it's the West or the East Sussex Record Office in uh, in, um, in 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 Britain, uh, and I was directed there by this magnificent uh, 
bibliography that Kenneth Ingram, who was a librarian at the University of West Indies in Mona, uh, and I, reading through, looking for political things relating to my political and constitutional study, uh, I... Um, I happened to notice that there were these two documents that he mentions. doesn't describe them very fully. And so when I actually went there to get copies of these documents uh, that I wanted to use in this political uh, project, um, I saw those two documents, one of which was a census of a complete census of the free population in Spanish town, the capital of Jamaica, in 1754, and the other of which was a detailed list of, uh, of the properties in the five surrounding parishes that depended upon uh, Spanish town, uh, and it listed you know, a whole, it gave, gave quite a bit of data on what crops each one of them produced. So I made copies of these, and I, I thought, uh, this is, you may, well, you wouldn't probably remember this, you're not old enough, but, but in the, the early 70s, uh, social history was becoming the rage, uh, and I thought, gee, that will make a really nice article for past and present. Uh, but when I actually started to uh, do a little work on them, I discovered that an article wouldn't do, and so I thought, I, and I knew about some other comparable documents um, that could flush this out, and over the next, oh, 15 years or so, I managed to uh, find a number of other documents, uh, and, uh, and it's the document, this is very much a document-driven book. Uh, every chapter is, uh, is driven by a particular document. Some cases it required two chapters uh, for uh, each of these um, uh, documents. But this is, th that's, that's the way I got interested initially in Jamaica um, and, uh, and, and its political, through its political history. Yeah, and those documents really are so central. You, you sort of mentioned a couple of them already, um, but I wonder because they're such an elemental part of how you're constructing this book, if you can talk about the, the records themselves. And you mentioned in the book how hard it is to do research on this period of Jamaican history, that there's a lot kind of at the end of the 18th century when abolitionism is driving a lot of political interest to Jamaica and the West Indies. Uh, but for 1750, it's hard to find sources on the island. So could you say a little bit more about the, the types of records that you look at in order to sketch out the island at mid-century? Well, actually... Yeah, I can. I can certainly do that. But but I think it's not true that uh, it's difficult to do research. I mean, it's difficult uh, because you have to go to uh, Spanish Town and Kingston, and Spanish Town is not the most uh, friendly environment. Uh, there's nowhere to eat there, and there's no hotel, and it's 17 miles away from the university. And so you more or less either have to rent a car if you're really um, uh, brave and want to take a lot of time, you can you can take a bus uh, over there. Uh, and Phil Morgan actually did that uh, for a, an entire summer uh, when he was in his early 30s or so. Um, but there, that the archive in Jamaica is really quite magnificent, and it's very well run, very well organized, and 
Not much has been stolen from it, and practically nothing has decayed from uh, uh, or, uh, in, in the way that it has in many of the, of the smaller islands. Barbados also has a very good archive. Um, but in addition to that, they have the National Library of Jamaica, which when I first encountered it was called the Institute of Jamaica, and they have a lot of manuscripts there, as well as uh, uh, printed materials, which is which were collected in the in in an earlier uh, by an by an early director, Frank uh, Condell, uh, and. Uh, uh, and then there's the Island Record Office, which has all the wills going back. Uh, and um, uh, so, so you can really find an enormous amount. I mean, the testimony to this is the credible output by Trevor Bernard uh, of articles. I mean, he must have 40 articles, well, at least 30 articles <laughs> uh, that uh, pertain to just about every aspect of life, all of which is dug out of those archives. That was his first job, as was at the University of the West Indies. He was there not for very long, but two or three years. Uh, and he spent a lot of time, he's very energetic, and he spent a lot of time in the archives in Spanish Town. Had a car, he could drive over there, I think. That's the best way to, to, to do research there, is to, is to rent a car, I think, and drive back and forth over there. Um, but uh, uh, and then the the volume of materials in the public record in the National Archives now in London uh, is incredible. I mean, it's really a large uh, because they were so, the the imperial government was so interested in uh, Jamaica, uh, and uh, uh, and there's a lot of stuff in the British Museum. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, brought over by absentees scattered in places like the West Sussex uh, um, uh, record office. So there, there really is just an enormous volume of material. The problem is that uh, for a young scholar who doesn't have independent means, uh, and uh, it, it's hard to, to work on these, on these uh, subjects because it, this stuff is, is widely scattered. Uh, but it's possible to do an enormous amount of good good work on that, and a lot of work has been done on it. The archives in Jamaica get particularly good when they start keeping um, uh, plantation account records, and that's what much of Barry Higman's extraordinary output has, uh, uh, has rested upon, uh, as well as those of several other uh, scholars who haven't been quite as productive as as he has, uh, so it's it's just a matter of neglect, and I think this is this is rooted probably not in in the absence of sources, uh, but in the uh, in the in 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 the fact that the people most many of the people who work on on uh, Jamaica do so uh, from a from the University of the West Indies in Mona. And uh, much of the best work has been done. And they uh, are more interested in focusing on the history of the population that I don't talk about in this book very much, but is there uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the background and essential to the to Jamaican uh, society, which is the black population. And they focus on things about abolition and so forth. So just not many people are, have worked on that uh, uh, on, on, on this early period. 
I mean, these documents, some of the documents I've used have been worked on. The one on St. Andrew's Parish was uh, uh, was written about by Frank Pittman in the fest shift for Charles McLean Andrews. Uh, and then David Ryden who wrote an excellent article on it uh, sometime after I had finished those chapters. Uh, but it, was, it, it has a, a more economic focus than mine does. Uh, but... Um, so, so there there has been some attention, um, but uh, much less on the 18th century. Well, let's get into some of the. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, no, but it does. I, mean, I think you're right. Part of the issue is that it is hard to get out to places like Spanish Town and Central Village and and Kingston, um, and I think that that there's also, as you mentioned, kind of. Uh, a lot on enslaved populations, and it's sometimes harder to get a sense of some of the free populations. And so maybe we should get into the actual findings that you have in the book itself. Um, one of the things that I liked was you really portray Jamaica as a very diverse island. It's not just this kind of singular place. And um, you have a great map uh, early in the book that categorizes the different parishes in Jamaica into a core, a periphery, and a near-periphery area. And that's a pretty crucial part of the way that you're outlining what's happening in Jamaica in the 18th century. So can you just talk a little bit about some of the key differences between those different regions? It's uh, it's somewhat complicated because my point in using those uh, was not to make the point that they're economically or socially entirely different, uh, but to emphasize... Um, their relationship to where the main center of life was, which was in an axis around Kingston and Spanish Town. Uh, that was the most heavily settled area, not just because Kingston was such a large town, and Spanish Town was not an insignificant sized uh, town, uh, but also because that's, that was a fully settled area with lots of people doing lots of things. Uh, and uh, that's where the legislature and the courts met uh, and uh, and where most of the merchants uh, resided. Uh, these outports, uh, Port Antonio, uh, was scarcely uh, anything in, uh, in 1750. Uh, and the same, same is true with Ocho Rios and, and Montego Bay and those places along the, along the uh, uh, north coast. Uh, but uh, contrary to one review of this book, my use of core periphery doesn't have anything to do with world systems uh, theory. It's rather an extension of the center periphery model that uh, I developed in the 50, 1980s in my book, Peripheries and Center, uh, to explain uh, relations between the metropolitan state and the colonial polities in the structure and governance of the uh, empire. Um, and uh, D.W. Meinig, I don't know if anybody reads him still, but um, uh, he's a historical geographer who uh, used a similar construct to depict uh, social and economic and spatial uh, change uh, in the colonies and diversity. Uh, among those uh, uh, based upon where they were in relationship to uh, whatever kind of center a colony in every almost every colony uh, had one uh, and ultimately my thinking on this subject 
uh, derived from an essay uh, by the sociologist Edward uh, Schill, simply called uh, Peripheries and Center. Um, and or he called it center and peripheries. Um, I wanted to emphasize the power of the peripheries, so I reversed that uh, term. Uh, and he wrote this really penetrating essay in the 1960s that used the concept to match out cultural diversity within societies. Uh, in in uh, settler Jamaica, uh, Jamaica I um, employ this concept uh, mostly just to define Jamaica's political core and the relationship between it and the rest of the island, the core's influence weakening uh, as parishes become more distant, uh, became more distant from it. And the core, core parishes, however, differed profoundly from, from one another um, and the same can be said for all those parishes in the other two categories, the near periphery and the periphery. Uh, that said, however, I think the core parishes tended to depend on more heavily on livestock and provision raising, though some of that was going on everywhere. Uh, and all the heaviest producers of sugar were in or immediately adjacent to the uh, peripheries. So there is a kind of, and the peripheries are strange because you know it's not like in the in Virginia or Pennsylvania where uh, the East is settled first and then people move west. I mean, in in uh, in Jamaica, the South Coast was settled first and then people spread out from there uh, as they could. Uh, and so the, there are peripheral areas on the East and on the West, and the West is the heavy sugar producing, but there's one parish in the East, St. St. Thomas in the East, which is also a very heavy uh, sugar uh, 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 producer, whereas none of those parishes in the, in the center uh, produce an extraordinary amount of sugar. They produce a bit, uh, and more in some than in others. And then in the near periphery, those parishes closest to the peripheral ones are the parishes where there's a large amount of sugar production. But if you take um, um, uh, Clarendon, which is the main, uh, the large, one of the largest, uh, uh, and which is just about 10, 15 miles west of Spanish Town, if you look at Clarendon, that's the most... Uh, heavily settled and a very prosperous and has a very um, uh, vigorous and uh, quite diverse economy with a lot of sugar plantations, but also quite a lot of, of uh, pins or ranches, uh, Jamaicans call ranches pins, uh, and uh, also provision, provision grounds, as well as a lot of miners' uh, production, a lot of miner staples. Um, in, in, in that area. So my use of this term is, uh, is more political than it is to be descriptive because within each of these categories, there are, there are places that don't fit the stereotype I just laid out. So. Yeah, and um, one of the things that kind of comes out is that you're pushing out against maybe a, a misperception that a general audience might have of Jamaica, which is that it's an island that's completely dominated by sugar and it just has a kind of uniform distribution of enslaved people. And you sort of touched on this a little bit, talking about Clarendon and some of the core peripheries, but I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about the degree to which 
we have other economies in Jamaica in the middle of the 18th century and uh, the ways that enslaved people are perhaps distributed across the island. Well, there are some really quite uh, stunning, I think, findings in this book. And one is the numerical predominance of the small small proprietors. Uh, they were, you know, they constituted at least 80% of the free population. Um, they, uh, together with people who are tradesmen and, 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 and doing other things, not owning big plantations. And the diversity of land use is, is extraordinary too. I mean, there are just all kinds of, uh, of uses of land. And then finally, the, the other thing that I think is really um, unusual is the, or that is, that is striking is the uh, ubiquity of enslavement and, and its wide use for any kind of thing you could talk about. Sla- slaves were asked to do those things and trained to do uh, tra- uh, trades, for instance. Uh, and uh, they, uh, you can see this in the Spanish town list that I have uh, with regard to the free, uh, free blacks uh, in that town. Uh, they, they are not slaves or former slaves, but they, they have been trained. Many of the men have been trained as artisans of one kind or another, somehow bought or, or won their freedom in some way, uh, and, uh, and they're continuing to pursue those, uh, those trades as much as possible. This was a society that, though it had an infrastructure of free people, uh, depended really heavily in every aspect of its being on its enslaved uh, population. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the, the, the great range of places. Now, it's also true that um, uh, a truism, for instance, uh, is, uh, is that Jamaica, that sugar supplied uh, most of the, uh, uh, sugar accounted for most of the, sugar plantations accounted for most of the slaves, and that sugar uh, products uh, dominated the export trade in Jamaican products. And those things are, you know, are, are certainly true. I didn't, I mean, I, I wouldn't dispute either of those uh, for a moment. But, um, but it was a much more diverse place. I think the problem comes from the fact that people treat the West Indies as a category, which in some ways it can be done. But it, Jamaica is just very different from from uh, any of the other islands. Uh, it's many times larger than Jamaica than the Barbados, which was the largest of the smaller islands, uh, and. Uh, it's almost as large as Connecticut. It's a great deal larger than Rhode Island or um, Delaware. And it's uh, not that much smaller than uh, New Hampshire, New Jersey, uh, uh, or even Massachusetts, So, uh, without Maine. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's a place that is bound to be more diverse. So I think if you if 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 there were similar kinds of documents about Barbados, it would be found that we already know that Barbados had a much higher percentage of white people in relation to um, uh, the enslaved uh, than did the Leeward Islands. 
uh, much less the new slave colonies created after the Treaty of Paris in 1763. But I think you'd find uh, a, a, a kind of similar uh, white population floating around underneath in, in Barbados. It wouldn't be as extensive and varied um, uh, are, uh, in, in terms of the economic activities, but it would be it would be there uh, probably none, nonetheless. Well, I don't know if this is helpful in terms of thinking about these ideas, but would you talk, would you call Jamaica a frontier society in this period of time? Again, you, you you chart the ways in which sugar was certainly dominant, but it wasn't the only thing that um, was being pulled out of the ground. And, uh, you know, in this mid-18th century period, one could look at it and say, well, sugar was pretty dominant in the Caribbean at this time. Generally, um, big slave owners were kind of monopolizing a lot of land. But do you see it actually as a little bit more of a kind of variable frontier-like experience? Or do you start, are you starting to see a kind of monopolization going on in Jamaica at this time? Well, I think there's another point we should talk about a bit, which is Jamaica's proximity to the Spanish main. But let's not forget to talk about that. But uh, to answer this question you you raised more directly, uh, just before the 1750s, in the 15-year before, Jamaica was very much like uh, South Carolina uh, at the uh, same time. Uh, and uh, George and what Georgia would become in the 1760s and and 1770s, uh, in that uh, there was a lot of land that uh, before had been unsafe to uh, to try to uh, establish any kind of uh, establishment on. Uh, that after the uh, peace with the Maroons in 1739, suddenly was opened up. Uh, and uh, all of that, a lot of that expansion of sugar culture came during that time. But so also did a lot of the expansion in other, in in, in with smaller uh, staples and uh, provisions and uh, cattle raising. Uh, so it's it's very much a and Jamaica is attracting a fair number of immigrants uh, who are uh, who are succeeding. Uh, on, on, in these places, it's some you can't go to Jamaica and build a sugar estate unless you got, unless you find a rich widow, or um, you'd have an extraordinary at least a couple thousand pounds that you could invest in buying uh, the plant and the labor uh, that's necessary to uh, to produce. But you can you can produce ginger and cotton. Uh, with a handful of laborers and without any special plant expenses. And a lot of that was obviously going on. Uh, and uh, in in these counties that were in these parishes that were uh, settled uh, principally after the peace with the Maroons, the Maroon, that, that Maroon War went on from the late 1720s to the to 17, 1739, and it really did arrest settlement much in the way that uh, uh, that King Philip's War uh, arrested and in in and uh, in, in New England and and um, Bacon's Rebellion and the Indian War surrounding Bacon Rebellion. It really did slow down uh, settlement and expansion, uh, and that same thing happened in in Jamaica. Um, and it does take a lot of money to build up a major uh, sugar 
uh, sugar uh, uh, plantation. And, and did you want to talk a little more about uh, the role of the Spanish and the Spanish Maine in this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, you know, one of the things is that I think we, we haven't talked very much about is is Jamaica's role in the empire. And since its uh, conquest, the metropolitan government, I think, regarded Jamaica as a potentially most valuable colony, like the potential most valuable player in a, on a baseball team. Or something. Uh, primarily, I think, because it was so big in rel- relative to their other island possessions. Um, and it's had a, uh, you could tell, I mean, the Spanish had already had some plantations there, some cocoa plantations. Uh, and they, they could tell very quickly that this was, the soil was rich and that they could produce a lot of things there. But the thing that was unique about Jamaica, other than its size, was the fact that it was so close to the Spanish Maine. Uh, and this was regarded by Cromwell, and, uh, and who backed this expedition that took Jamaica, um, as a, as as a uh, opening up vast possibilities for trade with the Spanish. Trade which the Spanish regard, of course, as illegal, uh, but which. Um, uh, that didn't apply to Englishmen. It wasn't illegal unless these guys, these English people, were caught. Uh, and so Jamaica became a big, a big uh, center for. And, and I think uh, nobody has really done a study about how much of its um, of the returns they were bringing to England came from the trade they were carrying on uh, in English goods. Uh, Jamaica serving as a kind of trans shipment point um, for um, uh, with with uh, areas in Venezuela and what's now Venezuela and Colombia uh, and Panama uh, and other other places on the on the coast. Jamaica was very close, and a lot of people made a lot of money doing that. They also made money privateering, uh, and some people. Uh, made money as pirates in the 17th century, uh, but they, um, the Jamaican government was very careful to not to uh, to uh, open themselves up to the, uh, the charge of, of uh, nesting, uh, creating a nest of, of pirates. But anyway, this this whole situation. Um, so if you and this is one of the uh, things. Uh, that helps contribute uh, to Jamaica's extraordinary contribution uh, to British maritime uh, resources, to uh, in shipping and overseas commerce, uh, uh, the domestic and, and domestic industry in Britain, uh, because so many British goods were consumed in Jamaica. They. they Every year, uh, brought in an enormous amount of English goods, and that's been often explained away as well. These planters were high livers, and so forth. And I think that's to some extent uh, true. They were buying uh, uh, goods, uh, um, luxury goods, and so forth, and, and a lot of other things that were necessary tools and so forth from from Britain. But they were also bringing in goods that they knew would sell on the Spanish main. 
And there's quite open trades in, in sometimes uh, between the two uh, areas. And the other thing that Jamaica was very important for was its, consum its uh, consumption of, of African bodies. Um, they never became, during this era, and not until very much later, very close to emancipation, uh, did the black population in Jamaica become self-sustaining, uh, though it may have lived better there because there was so much ground in Jamaica that uh, practically every slave family living outside of a town, or outside of Kingston really, um, had its own a plot and had uh, had its own uh, domestic animals and and planted and planted uh, foodstuffs because they um, were expected to feed themselves. Um, but the growing demand for slaves in Britain's enormously profitable African slave trade, all this can be can be um, uh, one, one, people could look at the situation and say and think that Jamaica uh, was not just the wealthiest colony as defined by per capita wealth of free people in the island, um, but uh, as a place that made a more of a contribution than probably any other colony did to Britain's economic well, well-being. And so they were very, they, they, they showed this in a willingness to actually spend capital from the British state to keep uh, varying groups of soldiers in the colony from the early 18th century on. And they didn't do that any, anywhere else. I mean, there are a few independent companies in Georgia and, and uh, in New York. Uh, and then after Nova Scotia is founded, a substantial establishment there. But this is something that they, they did that they didn't, um, they didn't do anywhere else. They didn't do it in Barbados. Um, and Jamaicans were willing to sub subsidize this uh, because they were... Uh, Afraid of the slave of slave uprisings, and that doesn't can't come out in this particular book because that's not uh, what it's about. But only the only really the French colony of Saint Domingue outpaced Jamaica during the 18th century as an economic dynamo, and it was really took off after the end of the American War. I wonder uh, if we could shift a little bit to talk about the free population of color. This is maybe just a self-serving interest on my part, since it's a population that I study. Um, and I wonder if you could you bring up some really great information about what Jamaica's urban population of color was. And um, could you just talk a little bit about what you found about the elite population in both Kingston and Spanish Town, and and particularly you talk about this issue of gender being an important aspect of uh, their success or their independence, so to speak. Um, in these urban centers. Yeah, I can't tell you very much about Kingston, actually, because for I'm sure that there are more black renters and occupants of houses, free blacks, than appear on the on the yearly tax list, uh, and uh, which is re relatively small uh, percentage of the population. Actually, a black population, a free black population, appears on that on on that uh, list, and uh, you don't know where these free people are living, and yet 
every 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 contemporary and there's a lot of contemporary literature being produced and published in England about Jamaica in the uh, in 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 this in this period, and they all say that there are from between one and two thousand free mulattoes and blacks in Kingston, and these people are very very hard to find on that on that parish. Um, list, uh, uh, tax list, and uh, but in Spanish Town we do know uh, a great deal as a result of this list. There are two lists uh, of in the census part of the uh, data that came out of uh, Sussex, uh, and that is the uh, apart uh, on the free whites and another part on the free blacks, in which it lists um, the who owns the house, uh, what their profession is, what its value is, the number and gender of the age of the occupants. Um, and one thing that does come out there uh, quite clearly, and this comes out insofar as there is data on house occupancy by free blacks in Kingston as well, and that is that whereas with a white population, uh, house ownership is heavily weighted toward males, and among the black population, it's heavily weighted toward females, and which raises the whole question of of um, how they, you know, why why that happened. And I and the, the conventional answer, especially after uh, Trevor Bernard's uh, book so heavily. Uh, uh, his first book on, on Jamaica, um, it it is usually probably uh, most the explanation that first occurs to you is that well this is just a, a, a situation in which white owners are having various kinds of relationships with black women and then sponsoring them and providing them with houses, and maybe even continuing these relationships. Um, but a whole lot of these free women of color were had uh, professions of uh, seamstress and so forth, which suggests that some of them may have actually worked their way out of slavery. Um, and then some, some of the males, no doubt, because Jamaica did recruit blacks into the army when they were invaded, uh, and they rewarded people uh, with freedom, with manumission. So that's where some of the free blacks came from. But that's the subject that I, that, that I think is opened up by, my, uh, by that census uh, that uh, needs a lot more work on. So I'm glad to hear you're working on this as a... As a as, as a general problem, we need to know a lot more about free blacks than we do, even though we know a lot more now than we did 30 years ago when I was starting the Atlantic History Program. The first conference we had was on free blacks um, and produced a kind of a nice set of essays about it, we, even way back then, but we didn't know very much then. Well, there are a lot of people that are doing great work on that topic, and I think that your book will be really helpful to contextualize it. Um, maybe just to kind of start to wrap up a little bit, I, I, 
I think there's so much great data in here and you have a lot of graphs to lay out everything. I mean, practically every page has a nice graph that shows you some really coherent, concrete aspect of of um, a parish in Jamaica or a town. And I'm sort of curious what you hope your readers take from all that data. If you're, you're wanting to see that data be used in certain ways, if there were certain stories that you were maybe hoping to tell, but you couldn't tell within the confines of this book because you have such a large mass of information. Um, what do you hope kind of comes out of all of this new data that's more accessible to people who can't make it to the archives in Spanish town or, or Kingston? Well, I said everything I could think of to say about that data. And uh, it's not a data that lends itself particularly to storytelling uh, because you don't really, all you see is you can invent a story about someone out of that, each person out of that data, but the data itself doesn't really give you any kind of uh, sense of what their daily lives were like, much less you know, some narr- a narrative structure around which to build to build a story. But this is, you know, this I, I've actually never been a friend to storytelling. I have to say this um, uh, because it's it's true. I mean, early on, I ask why were all the smart people going into physics when history is so much more complicated and challenging. To, uh, to get right, and I, I noticed that people who really liked history did so because the professors told stories in their classes and anecdotes, and so I resolved after I'd been teaching two or three years, I was never going to tell an anecdote in a class, and I never did, um, uh, because, I mean, I had a, a, a brief conversation, uh, interesting exchange at a OAH meeting with uh, Laura Walrick, and who some reason I because this wasn't a book on it wasn't a session on my book Pursuits of Happiness, but somehow she was tearing into this book, and she said, "I got really angry with this book because there were no women in it." But then I realized there weren't any people in it at all, and I responded by saying that. Uh, um, when I got old, I might tell stories. But in the meantime, I wanted to do history. And and uh, I've never thought biography was history. Uh, and I've never, you know, I, that's been my orientation. There are a lot of people like me in my generation. <laughs> and we were all very excited to be doing those kinds of things and not to be descending to what we regarded as the trivial. Um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I know that's not the case anymore because I go and listen to these things at the John Carter Brown Library, often which are stories built on not very flimsy, on, on not very substantial evidence, and sometimes they're fun. But uh, I don't often see them related to larger questions of the kind that I was determined to address, or I thought I could address, maybe. Uh, so, so that that's a you know I, I don't know that there are any stories except the stories about the construction of the book and the construction of the documents, and these documents all grew out of a very almost all of them grew out of a very large 
story, which I tell at 80 page length in a book published by Liberty Fund on, on liberty in America. And it's the uh, dispute over the removal of the capital from Spanish town to um, Kingston that occurs in the mid 1750s, which is generated by the inability of the governor to uh, persuade any parish but St. Andrews to, to fill out this big questionnaire, which the St. Andrews, uh, Andrew uh, guy did. No, nobody else would do it. No other parish would do it. Uh, and uh, the uh, refusal of the assembly to do any of the things that the uh, metropolitan government had told him needed to be done through his instructions. And in that story, uh, the mer he, he turned to the merchants in, in Kingston who were, didn't like to go 17 miles into the country to register their ships and do all their paperwork. And so he got, he formed a party, and that's what produced these, all of these documents, or a lot, most of these documents uh, that we can analyze. So that, that story is an interesting story because the Spanish town people win because the metropolitan government just can't, doesn't really have the wherewithal to enforce anything, um, even with a few regiments of troops around there, because the troops are there to protect these people. Uh, and uh, all this comes out very uh, strongly in the project I'm working on now. Uh, well, not about that, uh, not about that specific incident, but the, the the mentality that produced that that level of resistance uh, comes out very strongly in this history of James uh, James Knight's uh, uh, unpublished history of Jamaica down to 1746 and. Uh, Jamaica is, I mean, Knight is incredible in sort of laying out in explicit terms how Jamaica thought the empire should be governed. And uh, what he says is that Parliament has no authority over us. We don't elect any members to it. This is in 1740 or whenever he wrote those passages. Uh, and uh, in fact, he said we have control over our own domestic affairs. And... Uh, we get some help, and we'll take more help from the uh, metropolitan uh, state if they'll, if they'll give it to us. Uh, but we, we're, the, we're the people on the spot. We know what the problems are. We're the only people who can legislate on them. And these uh, governors who they're sent over are uh, generally uh, out to make a buck. And so they, uh, you can't trust them. And so the, um, uh, we can deal directly with the crown. But anyway, that's 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 an aside to. Uh, no, that's great. And, and uh, did you want to maybe we could kind of wrap up with that? If you want to say a little bit more about this new project with Knight and um, sort of what he brings to the question. Well, I have this uh, James Knight, who was I could uh, just say briefly was a. Uh, it's astonishing what I don't know about him. I don't know who he married or who his father was or. Uh, how many children he had? I know he had three uh, because he left a will. Uh, but um, there may have been others. But anyway, he uh, had been in Jamaica as a child, which we know only from an aside. He has a sentence in the history. Uh, and then he came back in 1712 and was and, – and he had rented uh, the office of uh, a collector general 
Receiver General, uh, from the patentee in, in London. And that guy sold it to somebody else after about six years, and Knight was there, but he obviously had mercantile connections because he had a, had substantial holdings on the on the waterfront and came in the, in the Kingston. Uh, but he uh, uh, he got very interested and he became a great Jamaica patriot and very interested in correcting uh, the misunderstanding of Jamaicans because while metropolitans appreciate its wealth, they had a low opinion of society. It wasn't just because of the slavery, uh, though that wasn't uh, didn't recommend itself to to anybody. Uh, to, to, to a lot of people, uh, but it was the uh, this guy, Ed, Ned Ward, who wrote a, a book called A Trip to Jamaica. He was never in Jamaica, but it's, it's a scurrilous piece, and, and there are lots of other things like that. They're written about uh, Jamaica that aren't very complimentary, so he was, he was determined to, to, do, to write a history uh, that would, uh, that, that would uh, correct and also would provide an account of what he thought was very important, which is the day-to-day history of this island. So he produced uh, a work that I, I don't, I can't remember how long it is. It's well over a thousand pages, uh, but it is. It comes out to about in twelve-point uh, type. It comes out to about nine hundred uh, pages. And he published it in two volumes. The first volume is indeed a narrative history. The first volume being, the first couple parts of it being the it, its history under the Spanish, and the next part being um, a uh, the, the con- English conquest of the island. And then there, the, the, there's a part three that I've broken down into six different uh, sections because it's 300 pages long, and it's a narrative history of Jamaica. Uh, in the conventional way, that is, relations between governors and the legislature, earthquakes, um, slave uprisings, hurricanes, uh, all the kind of traditional things that would go into uh, history. And it remains to this day the best account of those things Uh, because he did a lot of research in contemporary uh, sources. Uh, he was in the legislature for eight years. He, uh, in addition to the to the, his early service as a crown officer, and he was a, a strong Whig. So he believed in consensual governance, and he believed that the only way the um, the um, empire could work was by letting each of these polities uh, pursue its own own course with while maintaining uh, profound respect for. For the crown, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the second volume is not a not exactly a history. It's a choreography in which it goes through a whole variety of aspects of every aspect almost you could think of in Jamaican life, and that's based mainly on his own experience and observations. Uh, but to some extent, on uh, sections on uh, the flora and fauna are very heavily indebted to uh, to uh, the founder of the British Museum, um, whose name and temporarily escapes me. Uh, but uh, uh, who wrote the famous Natural History of? Yeah, was it? I used to be Sloan or 
Yeah, Han Sloan. Yeah, that's what exactly what I'm talking about. And and he, you know, he he he's quite up on the on the literature, although he doesn't cite very much of it. And he has contempt for a lot of it, especially the other histories that have been written. Uh, but this this work, which I've written a long introduction to, in which if, if it comes out uh, uh, with the University of Virginia uh, Press, uh, which has wanted to publish it for some time, but the the foundation that I have to back it wants an elegant book uh, by which they seem to mean one print on very nice paper, but mainly to have uh, from 30 to 50 contemporary illustrations. And um, uh, I've finished this introduction and the, and the manuscript, although I still have some work to do on the footnotes. In fact, when I was writing the introduction, I sort of ignored a lot of relevant modern recent works on, uh, on that ought to be cited to uh, uh, send, not because I used them, but because uh, I, uh, a reader might want to pursue any of these uh, questions. And I have to go through and do things like that. And there are a number of, of problems with the footnotes. That, but there now, the, the book is there being evaluated and being um, uh, assessed for how much of a sub subvention it may cost, which will be substantial. I think this has never been published. Uh, I should have said this earlier. Uh, Knight finished it just before he died. He died in either late 1746 or early 1747. I'm not sure. I don't really know which. Uh, but in any case, before he before he died, he'd finished the book and had got some sample pages of the preface. Uh, and uh, but he hadn't uh, gotten gotten the thing published. And his children, obviously, or whoever was handling his estate. Uh, didn't follow through on it. So that manuscript stayed in the family, I guess, until the 1780s sometime when it came in the, the possession of Edward Long, who is a famous historian of Jamaica, who had published his history in 1774. But that history shows no sign of having knowing anything about uh, Knight's uh, work. Uh, and But there, there is a man, Long set out to revise his history in the sometime in the late 1780s, and he was going to incorporate a lot of sections out of Nice, but, but that he never brought that project to uh, to fruition. So roughly, that's what I that's what I've been that's what I've been doing. So well, that's fantastic, and I really hope that that can come out. I'm eager to read the many hundreds of pages that it has. Um, but oh well, and, and the great thing about it is, you know that. Uh, well, actually, it's, it won't be, will it? If it's published in a folio edition, it won't be searchable. In the form I've got in now, though, it's searchable. <laughs> Even better. Which it never has. And I've, you know, I, I hope copies somehow wind up in the hands of Trevor and, and uh, other people who are other Jamaicanists aficionados who might find it useful to have a searchable copy. So. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking about your book. And I think for uh, people who do tell stories, uh, this is a great chance to understand the background and the economy and all the, the context that they might be missing in their own stories. Um, so thank you so much for joining me and, and talking about the book. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>